Please be seated. I was commenting on, uh, when I first got here, I was uh, interested in your bulletin. It was uh, 15 pages and eight and a half by 11. And I'd never been in a church that had that large uh, a bulletin. And then one of the deacons last week relieved me of my concern because he says, well, that's what we read during the sermon. <laughs> Something interesting. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, there is, I think he's passed away, a great uh, science fiction writer named Robert A. Heenlan. I think that's the way I pronounce it. You know, Starship Troopers, and you remember Heenlan? Don't I have any science fiction aficionados among us? There we go. Is it Heenlan or Heinlan? Heinlan. He's passed away, right? Yes. Well, in 1961... He published a book that is listed by the Library of Congress as one of the 80 most influential books in American history. It was called uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. And it was about a young man who was on an exploration expedition to Mars. And it crashed, and everyone died but him. He was a baby. And so the Martians very kindly... Uh, reared him until he was about 16. And then he came back to earth. And he had to uh, adjust to being in, a, in a, a human culture. The reason it was so influential is because the book uh, told the people in the 60s, Americans, exactly what they wanted to hear. Because he, the first thing he did was start a new religion, a world religion to replace all the uh, backwards religions that Earthmen had. And this religion had some good characteristics. First of all, it was uh, 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 immoral. You could do anything you wanted to do sexually, you see. Well, that really fit the 60s nicely. And then this young man had another power when people rebelled against him because of this church that was taking over everything. He had the power to blink them out of existence. Now, that may sound like today, but that's when it started, you know, uh, was in the 60s. It's about a 350-page book. I'm not sure it's worth reading. It has a poor plot, and it's obviously, you know, uh, uh, propaganda. Although Heenland said, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just trying to get people to think, trying to cover himself. But one thing, uh, I'm a fan of Heenland. He wrote a lot of uh, interesting stuff. But I've always been fascinated by his title. He took the title from the book of Exodus, you know, being Jewish. And um, this is it in Exodus 2.22. She gave birth to a son, and Moses called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Now, a newer translation say, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, something like that, which is certainly accurate. But you can't always exceed the literary quality of the King James, can you? Can you imagine uh, a book whose title is uh, Foreigner in a, in a 
in a, a foreign land. I mean, it just is so euphonious. Stranger in a strange land. And this is Moses. He's talking about his son Gershom. And, of course, he had been exiled from Egypt, and he lived there in the, in the Sinai Desert and married and started having a family, a stranger in a strange land. Now, I like that because this morning we're looking in our progress through John 17, the high priestly prayer for Christ. We've come to verses 14 through 16. The Lord has prayed to his Father, Lord, return to me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. He's prayed with his Father. Now he's praying for his followers. He's praying specifically for his uh, now 11 uh, apostles. And then as he progresses, he starts praying for those who will believe through their preaching, which is us. So now he's praying specifically for those 11 apostles because he said uh, in the previous verses, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Now I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to comfort them, to work alongside them. But they've had my physical presence now for three years, and all of a sudden I'm going to be gone. And so he says, protect them, Father. I protected them, now you protect them. And then he prays this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Six times in those three verses, he uses the word world. But what strikes me is the, the verb in the first sentence, hate. I must tell you, I've struggled for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's not easy preaching a sermon where the central verb is hate. I mean, love, okay, we can do that. Glory, uh, we can do that. Sacrifice, we can do that. Service, fellowship. Think of all the good words we have as Christians. And now I have to preach a sermon whose primary focus is hate. Let's just go home and forget about it. <laughs> I mean, wait a minute, this is not working well. In fact, it discombobulated my mind so much that I reverted to Robert A. Heenland's title from Exodus, Stranger in a Strange Land. Because my first question is, hold on a minute. Uh, I live here. You know, I'm a citizen, you see. My father fought in World War II. Uh, my great-grandfather fought in the Civil War. My ancestors came over before the Revolutionary War. I had some ancestors in North Carolina who fought in the Revolutionary War, and they, were given, they lived in Virginia, and they were given land grants in North Carolina, and that's where uh, the Curran clan in North Carolina got started. There's even a, a, a James uh, a Curran Daughters of the American Revolution uh, unit up in North Carolina. So I pay my taxes. I mean... Uh, I don't know that there's a warrant out for me uh, that I know of. So um, I went to public school, government school. Uh, I went to a university. I, I, I paid my tax. I mean, what? How, how all of a sudden did I find out that I'm hated? Well, let me ask you, do you have someone in the world that hates you? Some of you may. 
Might even be in your own family. I don't know. Uh, this, these things happen. But to be hated, isn't that a strong word? In fact, someone I was talking to him about this, he said, well, what does the Greek say? Because the New Testament is written in uh, common Greek of the first century. And I said, no, that doesn't help. You know what it means in Greek? Hate. I mean, <laughs> I can't. There's no refuge there. And uh, so that's how I got with Heenland, strange in a strange land. So first of all, let's look at the, this, the landscape of this strange land. How, how, did, how, did it, how, did, how does it that, that, that he's talking about hate? And first of all, he uses the word world six times. And he says, look, it's the world that hates you. Now, we're not talking about the created world, uh, which is so beautiful and abundant. Although sometimes we wonder about the created world, don't we? When you have wildfires, like in California, or when you have earthquakes, or when you have hurricanes, or like we have in the south, or when you have, uh, did I say earthquakes? When you have uh, monsoons in other parts of the world, when you have drought, uh, sometimes we wonder, you know, what the earth's got against us. And of course, we understand that from Genesis, where it says God cursed the earth because of our ancestors' sin, and it brought forth briars and everything, and you have to get your food by the sweat of your brow. And Romans 8 even says that the earth is now in birth pains because it's looking forward to the, being revealed to the, the children of God because when they are revealed, when Christ returns, the earth is going to be remade. And the earth is looking forward to that because right now it's cursed. And as beautiful as it is, it just doesn't yield as much. Bad things happen. But we still see in the earth, even in God's uh, judgment, there is a provision for mercy and grace. Because the sun still shines, the rain still comes down, the plants still reproduce, there's still dry land on which we can live. There is still uh, bounty even in beneath the ground that we can dig out gems and uh, minerals and, and uh, all sorts of things that we can use. So we're not talking about the created order, hating. Because after all, the earth can't hate anyway. Hate, I looked it up even. I said, where's my definition? An intense or passionate dislike. An intense or passionate dislike. Well, that didn't help because I don't mind being hated, but I sure don't like not being liked. You know, it's my primary motivation here as your pastor to be liked. You know, everything I do is designed for you to like me. Now, if that were true, you'd need to look for someone else <laughs> because you can't, get, you can't get the job done. I mean, is that what you do at work? Is everything you do to try to be liked? Can you get your job done if that's your primary goal? Uh, but to be passionately and intensely disliked, well, that's not the created earth, the created order, uh, because I've never seen a tree yet unless it's in some uh, uh, fiction, you know, you know, like Lord of the Rings, that, that hated me. Uh, have you ever had a tree hate you? Sneak up on your house at night and drop pine cones on your car or something like that. You know, this is not the created order. We're talking about the moral order. And that is the created world of beings that 
have the ability uh, given by God to accept or reject the Creator. And that created order is either indifferent or malevolent, you see. And indifference is the same as malevolence. It just hasn't been stirred up yet. Well, how did that come about? We'll look in a little bit later toward the end of the sermon at Revelation 12. But it shows that there was a rebellion in heaven among the angels. And there was a war in heaven. And Michael led one uh, host that was on God's side. And then uh, Lucifer, the son of the morning, the most beautiful, most powerful angel, led those that rebelled. But there were a lot more that were loyal than rebelled. And so this angel and his followers were overthrown. Yea, for Michael. And they were thrown out of heaven. And that's the first level. Well, where did they land? They landed on the earth. The earth that had already been cursed because of man's sin. And that was inhabited by a race of people that had been born through the original mother and father who had sinned. That's that southern way of speaking, isn't it? You know how to speak southern is add a Y syllable. So sin becomes sinian. You got, you got that? Sinian. And hell becomes hell. It just sounds so much, uh, there are more syllables to say. If you sin, you're going to hell. You can roll it around in your mouth, the king's English. It sounds more like uh, Shakespeare than it does uh, modern America. But they had sinned, and that sin had uh, broken the mold. It had shattered the image of God in them. And the image still existed, but all their children now were born in a state of indifference or rebellion against God, the Creator, which is a bad thing when you ignore the hand that feeds you or you bite it. So Satan is cast out, then he falls down to the earth, and he has a, we- a ready and willing group of people, the people of the earth, who would rather listen to him than listen to the Creator. We know that because our ancestors, Adam and Eve, Eve at least, prefer listening to him in the Garden of Eden than following God's command. And so for this period of time, we live in a world such as us, we're all people, right? Everybody's people here. We're all descended from that sinful beginning. And it darkened our mind and it hardened our hearts, put our wills in chains so that we can't comprehend God, we can't love God, we can't obey God. As a matter of fact, we don't want to. As a matter of fact, it's the last thing we want to do. And so in the midst of that, God had a plan to bring glory to himself. And he said, out of all these people... I'm going to choose and rescue a group of people. Then I'm going to enlighten their minds so that they can understand. I'm going to soften their hearts so that they can believe. I'm going to free their wills so that they can obey me. And then, I can't ignore their sin. My son will die for their sin. And in reward, I will give him this group of people. And let's call them after him. His name is Christ. And we'll call them Christians. So you have this island, this outpost of people in this fallen world overseen by this fallen angel whose number one goal in life is to 
not glorify the Creator. Push back against Him, defy Him, fight Him at all times. And in some generations, it's done subtly through indifference. In some generations, it's done through outright defiance. So that's the world that we're talking about. That's the landscape of this strange land. So, and that's why Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. The hatred is because these people have been given God's word, which gives information outside this fallen world. And that information, like the guy who came from Mars, tells us things we would not know otherwise. And it gives us a new view of things. And that view clashes with the view that allows you to have freedom from God. Because it says that there is a powerful, personal, purposeful God who really does care about what goes on, but who has a standard of behavior, that standard is his holy character, which he has codified in laws in the Bible, like the Ten Commandments, and he actually judges people. There's a right and a wrong, and there's a reason and explanation for the way everything works. And then if in our individual lives, in our families, in our businesses, in our government, if we follow the pattern he's laid out, we'll have blessing. If we defy the pattern he's laid out, we'll reap corruption, and all sorts of bad things will happen. Now, to finish the story, I was telling you about the angel that was in heaven and rebelled, and he's thrown down to the earth. At the final consummation of history, from the heaven to the earth, he will now be cast out of the earth and put in an even lower place called hell, where there's eternal fire and self-condemnation. But we're in that in-between time. And you might have a question. We have a pastor's class at 1115 downstairs where you can ask the question, why did God do it that way? And and we'll be glad to answer that. But we want to answer some more questions here this morning. And that is, number one, the landscape and the dangers. The dangers. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, but therefore the world hates you. Now, how are we going to handle uh, this hate? First of all, we just explain where it came from and why it's there and why it's natural and why it's directed toward us. I hope that's, what did we do? We took a few minutes to explain that. Let's go to the next part. How do we handle it? In a previous sermon, we talked about, you know, defense training, how people, if you're in a threatening situation, uh, you either want to uh, fight or flee. And we said most oftentimes people just freeze, and that gives the perpetrator a moment to take the advantage. And there's another one that rhymes, uh, fight, flee, freeze, or appease. The first thing we do is kind of freeze, and the world takes advantage of that, and we actually cross over to the dark side and fall in love with the world because the world has so much to offer. They're our friends, they're our neighbors, they're our family. They have their promotions, 
They tell you how to look cool. Uh, the world is, can be so attractive. Now, you would think, wait a minute. How would that affect someone who knows what the game is? Well, it can even happen to the best of us. For example, in Colossians 4, Paul talks about a guy, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. In Philemon, Philemon 1, he, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So this guy Demas is a fellow worker with Paul. And then in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. And then he tells why Demas, his fellow worker, deserted Paul because he loved this world. It's a natural reaction. If you can't beat them, join them. And we fall in love with the world. But then that's not wise because God is saying, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all this in the world, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life are passing away. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. That's the first danger we fall into. This is the danger of the strange land, is to love it. Well, then sometimes we do the opposite. You know, if we can't uh, love it, then we will flee or fight. We return what's been given to us. We flee or we actually end up hating. Have you ever felt that way? You know, and, and in our household, we've got to the point where we don't watch much news anymore because uh, so much comes from the world. And you just get tired of filtering out, trying to filter out truth. Although I do a lot of uh, online reading, I just got impatient with sitting there having someone explain it to me. Uh, I said, let me just read it and I can filter it better. It is tempting to either hate the world and flee from it. And that has been the uh, response in past history of some of the church. Even in the uh, uh, first, second, third centuries, the, um, the monks began in the place. There was a guy uh, down in the deserts of Egypt, and they would go out and find a cave. And they would reject the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. They even had one guy, Simon, uh, he, would, he lived up on a, a pole, a column, you know, for about 40 years. He lived up there. And people would send him up water and food, and he just lived up there his whole life. And he was a holy person because he had given up everything the world had to offer in terms of lust and the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life to escape. We even did that some after the Scopes Monkey Trial and uh, the turning away from Christendom in America uh, in the early part of this century. And so we went out and uh, built our own private schools and built our own universities and set up our own way of giving degrees and everything and said, let's run this separately from, from that. And uh, there's certainly some merit in that. I'm not uh, uh, su suggesting that that's all wrong because it was God who said, come out from among them. Be holy, and you can't be holy if you're living in pollution. 
And so there's a, a desire to flee. But the problem you run into that is uh, Paul said, insofar as you're able, be at peace with all men. And then I gave you a verse here in Galatians. We highlighted it uh, in your bulletin. And it says uh, on page 11, is we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. In other words, we're not supposed to return hate for hate or evil for evil because that will destroy us and not signify God's love for people, and it will not help anybody else. We're actually supposed to do good. And I love the way it says, especially to the household of faith. That's where we start. And next Sunday, when we have communion, at the end of communion, as we do every month, we will take up an offering, a deacon's offering. Is that what we call it? And that money is, that you contribute is used to help people in need uh, by the deacons privately in our congregation and in the community. And I've been here when people have come by the church and they're given like a uh, gift certificate that they can use and go uh, buy food with and have helped with cars, have helped with rent, have helped with electrical bills, doing good, not fleeing, not hating. But isn't that a very narrow line to be able to walk? Not loving, not hating and resisting, uh, and, and, and uh, fleeing, but let me say, tell you where I think this is supposed to go. And you can tell I'm a little, struggling a little bit with this because I'm still shocked that someone would hate me. Are you? <laughs> How am I supposed to react to that? Well, I'm not going to hate back. I'm not going to flee. In fact, Paul says right here in uh, John 15, uh, no, down here in uh, number 3, 1 Corinthians 5, he said, I wrote you in my letter, this is the lost letter we have to the Corinthians, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, what, what uh, sexually immoral is he talking about? The people in the church. He's talking about the sexually immoral the greedy, the swindlers, and the idolaters in the church, those who profess to be Christians but are still living as if they were part of the world because they love the world. And he says, within the church, if they profess to be Christians and live that way, don't have anything to do with them. But he says, I didn't mean not have anything to do with your family and your neighbors and your co-workers who are sexually immoral idolaters and swindlers and greedy because if you did that you'd need to go out of the world and we'd have a Jamestown deal with everybody taking the Kool-Aid and we'd just say hey we're getting out of here we can't we can't live in this mess so what are we to do well the world has figured this out we defy we don't hate we don't flee we do good we defy by doing good. We resist. So you never thought you'd hear this. Let's join the resistance. Because that resistance started with whom? 
Jesus. He said, the world hates you because it first hated me. In John 7, they're going up to uh, the uh, Passover. And his brothers say, come along with us. I mean, you're such a big guy for going out and preaching all over the place. Come to the biggest festival of all and everybody can see you. He says, no, you go. He says, you're part of the world, so the world doesn't hate you. But I'm not of this world, and therefore the world hates me. He's saying this to his own brothers. Jesus started the resistance uh, within himself. He, 1 John 4, 5, John is talking, he says, about some people that disagree with the gospel. They are from the world and speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Viewpoint. They are from the world and speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Viewpoint. He's saying, if you believe Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world and pronounced it good, and then sin came into the world. If you believe that, that God is powerful, personal, and purposeful, then you have a worldview that's totally different than the world. And therefore, there's going to be conflict between the two. In fact, as much as you dislike what they do, they dislike back what you do even more. In fact, Romans 1 says what is known about God is so evident, it's so clear that it has to be suppressed. Well, how is it suppressed? With unrighteousness. You can't just do it mentally. You have to actually live a lifestyle that suppresses truth. And they have something in the, uh, another sister denomination that is moving very quickly toward the world and away from Christ. And they have a thing called clubbable. That means if you want to be part of our club, you need to get rid of that biblical worldview and move toward the world's worldview, and you can be clubbable. No. We resist. We defy. And this is now when we'll look at um, Revelation 12, and I'll share this with you. And you can read the rest of this because there was war in heaven, and there's this Satan who leads the whole world astray. Uh, verse 15, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser has been hurled down and the believers overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And then it says this, they did not love their lives to death to the death. They did not love their lives to the death. See, the resistance is so strong because we belong to Christ that we're, really, we're willing to resist even to death. Now, let's stop and think about that for a moment. That's what characterizes those who are going to resist the world and resist Satan. They must be willing to resist even to the death. While doing good. In fact, um, well, let's say do th two things before we close. How is this done? And an illustration of this from the history of the church. Jesus says further, and we're going to look at this this next week 
verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And sanctify means what? Set apart for special use. Do you have any, when Sandy and I got married, this was 1972, right, Sandy? Make sure I'm right. We still can't remember if it was May 5th or 6th. We ask ourselves every year, is it the 5th or the 6th? And, uh, and so we actually did the deal where you go uh, get a silver pattern and a china pattern. And our friends and relatives and everything actually bought all that for us. So we've got this beautiful eight-piece setting of china and silver and everything. I don't think any of our daughters did that. You know, you don't really do that anymore. But uh, so we went our lives waiting for that special occasion when we brought up the china and the silver. And then finally said, wait a minute, a couple of decades have passed. We haven't used this because when you're rearing three daughters and all their friends and all their animals, you know, you don't want to get out the good stuff. And so we started using the good stuff, you see. We had sanctified that good stuff. We set it aside for special use. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. And then you say, well, what's the truth? Thy word is truth. And that's why we gather every Sunday to worship God, but a centerpiece of our worship is the teaching and preaching of God's word. Because Romans 12 puts it this way when it says, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. Well, that's the sanctification. Set aside for God's use. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the resistance. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, sanctify them by the truth. What is the truth? Your word is truth. And so that's why we spend so much time in God's word, because we're continually filtering filtering the world and renewing to each other in our own mind what the truth is so that we can resist the world, not hate it, not desert it, even do good, but not be conformed to it. And so we sometimes wonder in 2018 because it used to be that the diet was preaching Sunday school and Wednesday night prayer meeting, three, three, three helpings a week. And now most people in American church get one helping a week. And so instead of being able to get you Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, I get one shot. And then that's why we have Sunday school. We're a two-hour church. And many churches actually say uh, we ask three things of members. Number one, worship. Every week, worship. Number two, study. It can be Sunday school. It can be a small group in your home. But in addition to worship and preaching, go to a study because we learn best when we interact with other people and say, well, what do you think of this? And how are you applying it? And how does it work with you? And the third thing is service. Worship, learn, serve. Those three things. And so I ask any member here this morning, are you doing the three? Are you in worship? Are you learning with your peers, with your brethren? And are you serving? Are you doing those three things? Now, I was checking, and there's a big church up the road, and I was looking at their website, and they have five. So count yourself lucky. (laughs) But let me uh, finish by telling you uh, uh, this wonderful story. 
because I am a, uh, a Constantinian. I think highly of Byzantium, Constantinople, and the thousand-year church that influenced the world so much. And there was a bishop of Constantinople. That's now Istanbul, okay? But it was Constantinople named after Constantine when he moved Rome from Rome to uh, Byzantium, which is a Greek uh, seaside city. And he, he I promised all the nobles, if you come over here, I'll give you land and standing. So a bunch of them moved over there. And all of a sudden, there's this civilization. And it was at the crossroads between east and west. And it held back uh, Islam long enough for the west to be able to develop as a civilization and in a powerful civilization that was militarily able to repel Islam's invasions into uh, Europe, Eastern and Western Europe. And it was a civilization, though, based on Christ and on the church because Constantine became a Christian and his mother became a great Christian. She built most of the churches that are now in uh, Israel. And they went to church just about daily, and you, the church that they went to, most of them is still standing uh, there, uh, Hagia Sophia. And so they were closely related to the bishop of that town. And they had a bishop, and this is about uh, 370, 380, 390 A.D. They had a bishop over in Asia Minor that was such a great, great preacher that they kidnapped him and brought him to Constantinople and ordained him the bishop of Constantinople, you know, because he would never want to go there of his own because it's a hotbed of politics. And sure enough, Chrysostom, he's called the golden tongue, golden throat, because he was such a great preacher. But he had a bad knack of preaching the Bible. And so he started preaching about the exportation of the ruling class of the poor, about the immorality of the city, about the theater and, and the horse races and all these types of things. Well, the emperor and his wife, Arcadius and Eudoxia, were Christians. They were in church every day, okay, every day. But they had a view of the church that the church's purpose was to be the social uh, action arm of the government and do all sorts of good deeds and alms and stuff like this. And so the political needs of the ruling class by shoring them up. And here this great preacher they had brought in, he's saying, well, you're exploiting, you're immoral, you go to the theater, you got horse races, blah, blah, blah. And he said, this won't do. And so Arcadius, the Christian emperor, brought uh, Chrysostom, the uh, Christian bishop, before him, and he said, you got to straighten up. And he said, I'm going to banish you. And Chrysostom said, well, you can't really do that. My father owns the whole world. Hmm, Okay. He said, well, I'm going to kill you. Begging your pardon, your highness, you can't really do that because my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, I'm going to confiscate all your treasure. I'm so sorry. My treasure is laid up in heaven. I'm going to wrest you away from all your friends and relatives and acquaintances. Begging your pardon, your royal highness, I have a friend who's promised me I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the resistance. That's pushing back. That's saying, no, the purpose of the church is not to serve the government or the business community. The purpose of the church is to serve its Lord. And you can see how when it comes to the business sphere or the government sphere or the entertainment sphere, how that would set up conflict. 
But where does the hate come from? Because when people say there is a Lord, a powerful, purposeful, purpose of a God, he cares about me, sent his son for me, and him I serve, and not you. So we don't flee, we don't hate, we do good, but we resist. We push back, we don't be conformed. In fact, someone said the reason a bubbling brook in the mountain sounds so cheerful is because there's a rock standing against the current. That's what we are. We will always be rocks standing against the current, but for those that can see and hear, we're a light to the world and a savor of salt, a preservative. So we might be strangers in a strange land, but we know what's going on and we know what our job is. And so we serve our Lord even in this midst because whose will is it for us to be here? His. And what is his purpose that we might glorify him? by being holy and set apart, and we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for you that you said in the world you have much tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So, Lord, we reaffirm our commitment to you, our commitment not to be conformed to the world, and not to be overwhelmed by being hated, but to love in turn, to do good, but to resist. Lord, graciously, would you give us the grace to do that, and thank you that we're in this together so that we can encourage each other even as we seek to serve you. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.